A young boy wishes his father dead by asking for his inheritance while his father is still living. His father, being a kind man, graciously grants the audacious request, and soon the boy is off for greener pastures. But days pass, money runs out. The boy is left with nothing. All at once, he comes to his senses, waking as if from a dream, and he remembers where he came from and who his daddy is. Upon returning home to his father, he expected scorn, shame, perhaps even to be treated like a slave. But instead, what he found was a father's embrace. Kisses, hugs, new clothes, and a party. The prodigal returns, and the party starts. Grace. We know it when we see it. And when God is at work, His grace can always be seen. You just have to look for it. His grace is seen in Acts chapter 11 this morning, in verses 19 through 30. And and the main idea, what I want you to walk away with, is that the church is characterized by God's grace. And the exhortation will follow suit. I will exhort you to be gracious. And you'll say, well, in what ways should we be gracious? By speaking about grace, looking for grace, learning about grace, and acting with grace. Let's pray. We'll talk context, and then we'll get into the text. Father, we thank you that you are rich in mercy and that you are a big spender. That you give us new mercies each morning. That because of our faith in the substitutionary death of Christ and in his victorious resurrection, that we don't need to fear death or any circumstance because we know this is indeed our Father's world. We thank you that you have separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. We thank you that you have called us holy, that you have given us your Holy Spirit, and that we are becoming what we've been declared in Christ. It's to that end we study your word today, it's to that end we gather to give you praise and worship for what you've done and what you will do. Most importantly, we come to worship you for who you are. You are our God and our King. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So context it Acts, if we're going to summarize the whole book, and Glenn was even able to do this for me on Thursday night at Bible study. It says, you know, in Acts, Jesus goes up, that's the ascension, he ascends to the throne, 
The Holy Spirit comes down, that's Pentecost in Acts, onto his people, and then the church goes out. And that's what we've seen in Acts, is the church going out and proclaiming the wonderful works of God. Chief among them, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Many have come to believe, and the church has expanded. Just as Jesus said it would in verse 8 of chapter 1. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And that's the pattern the book has followed. We've seen the witness of um, Jesus' victory over sin and death fill up Jerusalem. We've seen it go into Judea and Samaria, and now it's making its ways to the very its way to the very ends of the earth. Last week we, we saw that this good news of redemption is even for Gentiles. That those who used to be strangers to the promise made to Israel could inherit that promise. That they could be made members of the covenant by faith. This blew some minds, but after Peter's recollection of his conversation with Cornelius about how God prepared Cornelius to hear the word, prepared Peter to take the word to him, And then the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles. Peter tells the church in Jerusalem all of this, and they agree. So then, it's verse 18 of chapter 11, God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. And now what Luke's going to do at this point in verse 19 is he's going to give us a little kind of flashback. He's going to resituate us a little bit and take us back to chapter 8. Okay? So if you remember, uh, right at the end of chapter 7, Stephen is martyred for preaching Christ. He's stoned to death. He says, Father, forgive them for what they're doing. And Saul is there. He hears the prayer. We've since been told that Saul has been converted as a Christian. But at the beginning of chapter 8, this is what we read. Saul agreed with putting him, that's Stephen, to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. I do love that note that God is using these ordinary Christians to spread his word beyond the walls of Jerusalem. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women and put them in prison. And in verse 4, this is what's going to help us get situated. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. And that takes us to, to verse 19. Now those who had been scattered, you see how those two fit together? Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now that verse 19 should, should come as no surprise to us, right? We just saw how hard it was for Peter to take the gospel to the Gentile Cornelius, and then there was that whole discussion at the front end of chapter 11. Is the gospel for the Gentiles? Has God granted them to repentance? And the answer is yes, but these folks that have been scattered, they don't, they don't know that yet. And so they're just sharing the gospel with Jews. It makes, makes good sense. The, the earliest of Christians were all Jewish, They hadn't wrapped their minds around the fact that God's heart was bigger than just one nation. They hadn't got that yet. 
I think sometimes we, we don't get that either. We don't share with anyone except for the people that we are really, really comfortable with. Or the people that look like us share our same background, ethnicity, and race. Friends, God's heart is for the nations. It's for all kinds of people. So too ought our hearts be. Those who are scattered, though, they continue on their way. We read verse 20. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks. That's Hellenists. These are Gentiles, but these are, these are not God-fearers like Cornelius. This is not a, a, a God-fearer like the Ethiopian eunuch. The, these are your, your straight-up pagans. Also proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And so they make their way all the way to the city of Antioch. This is actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was the capital of Syria. It had about half a million people in it. And some people called it the abode of the gods. And so it is pluralistic and there's idolatry everywhere. And all that to say, the people in Antioch are not predisposed to believing the gospel at all. Like monotheism is not going to be their jam. And the people who are scattered there are not predisposed to share the gospel with them at all. They're not Jews, but God is at work. His hand is with them, and he prompts them to share the gospel with these pagan peoples. And these pagan peoples come to believe. They turn to the Lord. What gives them success, what prompts them to speak, is none other than God himself. God is the primary actor in this text. He's the primary actor in the book of Acts. They're scattered at the front end as the result of what? The persecution. And I think it's just, it would have been natural for them, it's natural for us when persecution comes our way, or more likely in our country, difficulties where we go, is God really in control here? Is his hand really with me? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. He's in the scattering. He's in the persecution. All throughout Acts, we see there's persecution upon the church, and over and over again, the word of God prevails. People die, and the message of the gospel goes forward. God's purposes and his plans are always realized. Even if we can't realize just what God is doing. What we do know, and what these folks who were scattered as a result of the persecution can know, could have known, is that God is good, and that he is sovereign, and that he had promised to them To work everything, well, they probably didn't know this promise, but we do. To work everything for their good and his glory. And I think an apt way of thinking about this is to say, don't, don't doubt in the dark what God has promised in the light. 
because God is the one who speaks light out of darkness. And out of the darkness of persecution, the church comes as the light of the world. Even to the ends of the earth. Even into Antioch. And they speak of grace to these pagans who seem completely unlikely to believe. And yet, God is with them. He is at work. And notice, they, they don't have like a really fancy evangelistic outreach program, okay? That's not what happens here. God uses the ordinary proclamation of his word in the mouths of ordinary church members to make the gospel go forward. Sometimes I think we forget that it's the power of God who gives people faith, not the power of our ability to be persuasive or to make the gospel look really, really cool. That's not to, to throw shade at, at evangelistic programs, and we do those things from time to time. But it is to say, the primary mode of evangelism, the, the primary evangelistic program for the church is the church. You are God's evangelism program. You are the ones who are to speak about the grace he has given to you in Jesus Christ. You are the ones who are to tell everyone about the forgiveness of sins and about the forever relationship with God that can be had by repentance and faith. We are God's plan for taking the gospel to the world. And since you are located here in central Virginia, it's your responsibility to speak about God's grace, to speak about Jesus Christ to your neighbors and to one another. You have a job to do. And evangelism is part of it. And I don't want you to freak out. I tell you that often. Don't freak out about evangelism. I think sometimes we, we view it as like this one big moment and this is my one conversation I get to have and I better not blow it. Like, calm down. You're, you're, you're not that important. I mean, you're important, but it's not that important. Nobody's eternal um, dwelling depends on you. It's, it's God who does the work. And he just allows us to be a part of it. God is the one who brings about conversion. You're not, you don't need to like make the sale. Does that make sense? I used to, when I was in college, uh, I was part of a group called Campus Crusade for Christ. They're now just called Crew because they were like, Crusade sounds a little violent. Uh, and so uh, it's just Crew now. Uh, but when I was in Crusade, we used to share the gospel all the time. We'd go door to door in the dorms. Uh, I, would, I went on mission trips, shared the gospel on the beach. But I very much had this idea that it was my responsibility to, to close the deal. And so my evangelism became, um, the goal of it became to get people to pray a prayer at the end of a book versus looking for any genuine conversion or repentance or, or connecting them to a church. My goal was, all right, Jesus died for your sins. Uh, you should put your faith in him. All right, just, just pray this prayer right here and you're good. Close the deal. I was good at it. I prayed the sinner's prayer with over 100 people. And I look back and I go, I, I might have done, some of them I'm sure, God, I'm so glad God is sovereign. I'm, I'm sure he rescued some of them genuinely. But I think I might have done others a disservice. 
where I assured them that they could be right with God and all they really had to do was pray that prayer and they, they didn't really need to follow Jesus and repent of their sin. So I was trying to close the deal, man. Sometimes our evangelistic efforts can get, you know, have good intentions for them, but they depend more on us, or we depend more on us, than on the power of God. And my point here is to say that conversion is the work of God. And so anytime you share the gospel, your job is not to close the deal. It's to depend on God. It's to pray that God would do a miracle. Did you know that when you are sharing your faith, you are anticipating, hoping for a miracle of God to happen in the person you're sharing with. They need a miracle to believe the gospel and you need them to have a miracle happen in their heart so that they do believe and respond with faith. It's not about you. You're not closing a deal here. You're not like a guy selling meat out of the back of a van. You've had those people come to your house maybe. I have. And uh, Chelsea and I are suckers. And so we, we ended up eating regret for six months. Right? But you know what happens Hey, these, this meat, it fell off the back of the truck, or this meat's at a discount. They didn't need it over here. It's overflow. It's really high quality. Um, I don't know if anybody, there might be a meat salesman in here, but anytime I've seen not great quality, overpriced. Uh, we got taken. But, but you know what? He was a salesman, and he closed the deal. That's not our job as Christians. We're not peddling a product here. We are reporting and declaring that God has made a way to be right with him. That Jesus Christ took the curse due to sinners so that we could have the blessing due to him. That he rose from the dead and that all who trust in him can have eternal life. We're just reporting the good news and waiting for God to do a miracle. Praying that he does. So I say that to say be encouraged in your evangelistic efforts. Yes, you should be responsible to declare the message. But beyond that, someone's conversion is not up to you. It's up to God. And more often than not, evangelistic conversations happen. It's not like it's not just one conversation. It's, it's many. It's relationship over time. It's praying for someone. And so oftentimes, like, what you can do when you go to, to the coffee shop or, or to get your hair cut or wherever it is you go during the week, you go to the same places, you build relationship with the same people, and you look for opportunities, hope, hoping to be able to maybe share the whole gospel. But sometimes, you, know, you just can't get that whole thing in there. You can just throw pebbles in people's shoes. What I mean by that is you just give them a little something about. You've had a pebble in your shoe before, right? This is the most annoying, like just not one that hurts enough to like make you stop and like dump it out, but you're like, I'm good, I'm going to keep walking. Ah, it's kind of there. You, you know, you want to mention how God is at work in your life. So let me, you know, when somebody asks you, hey, how was your weekend? Instead of responding, good, it's Monday. <laughs> or, man, did you see that game yesterday? WVU is looking really, really awesome true as those things are. You would say, hey, how was your weekend? It was really good. I, I love my church. It was the best part of my weekend going to church service. The, 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 the music, yeah, you know, the, the, the preaching, yeah, but man, I love the church. I love those people. It was great. God met me there. You know, just little pebbles. We want to Bring our spiritual lives into the rest of our lives because 
They're not separate. And we are sinning when we pretend as if they are. There is no, uh, I'm spiritual on Sunday, and now, you know, Monday, Monday me is here. Sunday you is everyday you, if you are in Christ. Let's put some pebbles in people's shoes. Talk about Christ. Speak about grace. God's people, the church, is characterized by grace, and we're characterized by speaking about the grace we have received. It defines us. Next, I want you to see that there is visible grace at the church at Antioch, and Barnabas finds it when he looks for it. Look at this, verse 20. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began to speak speaking to the Greeks, also proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them. Encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. So the church back in Jerusalem hears about this. And they do a similar thing that they do back in um, Acts 8, when they hear Samaritans are believing. They send Peter and John to check things out. So they're sending Barnabas, you know, go check this out, make sure it's legit. And Barnabas is just a really good choice for something like this. He's described as a good man full of the Holy Spirit. And I don't just think that's a throwaway line. If you remember the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We see that this goodness is the product of the Spirit being at work in Barnabas. Barnabas is somebody who is following Christ closely. He's a good man. Everybody likes Barnabas. In fact, Barnabas isn't even really his real name. It's, it's Joseph. And it's not that Joseph's not a great name. It's that this guy is always encouraging everybody, and so they give him this moniker, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. I, I could never earn a nickname like that. They might call me like son of cynicism. Right? But Barnabas, everybody loves him. You want to talk to Barnabas. When you, when you show up somewhere, you're like, that's Barnabas. I can't wait to talk to him. He always lifts my spirits. I always feel better after talking to Barnabas. When people see you, do they think, I can't wait to talk to that person? Or do they think, oh no, here comes the cold water committee? Oh no. Here comes some discouragement. Barnabas is an encourager and he, he exhorts them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. And so uh, I just I can picture him going, finish the race. Keep following Jesus. God is at work in you. Keep trusting. Keep moving forward. Don't ever stop following Jesus. There's nothing better. You know, wherever they're meeting, he hangs one of those cat posters up. It says, hang in there. And cat's like hanging off the edge. He's an encourager. And man, I want to be like Barnabas. I hope you do too. We want to be the kind of people 
that when we see the embers of God's grace in someone's life, that we fan those puppies into flame, that we're looking for evidence of grace in our brothers and sisters, exhorting them to keep following Jesus, that, that God is at work in their lives, because he is. We have to look for grace. In the same way, uh, some folks at the beach, they will carry around those metal detectors. They're like, you know, you've seen them. They're collecting coins or maybe, I don't know what you're looking for when you're doing that. It seems boring to me. But, but we want to be people that have kind of like, this is really lame, but grace detectors. Where when we see one another, we're going, where is God at work in their life? How can I point that out to them? I want to encourage them. We want, we want grace in the culture of our church to be like salt. And what I mean is, is when you sit down to, to eat a meal, you don't like have, have your meat here and you eat it, and like your beans here and then, then, then you eat it, and your fries over here and then you eat those, and then a pile of salt over here and then you eat that. No, that, that, you take the salt and you put it on all the other food. It makes all the other food better. That's how we want to use encouragement here. We want encouragement to salt every aspect of our lives together. We want to constantly be reminding one another to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. And so we want to look for grace and encourage one another. And we want to, so when we see the grace of God in someone else's life, we want to rejoice over that. You see in, in verse um, 23, he saw the grace of God he was glad. He was glad. He didn't get jealous and go, man, God's doing better stuff here at Antioch than he is back in Jerusalem. I'm going to find a way to sabotage this. No, he's glad. He's rejoicing with those who rejoice. He sees what God is doing and he gets happy. I mean, can that be said of you when you see God's blessing or God's grace in someone else's life? Do you rejoice as if it had happened to you? Or do you all of a sudden have some envy crop up in your heart? Barnabas is glad. He rejoices when he sees God at work. Let us do likewise. Look for grace. Because when God is at work, it can be seen. Let's look for it and encourage one another about what God is doing. Let's look for the grace of God and rejoice over what God is doing. And let us learn more about this wonderful grace of God. Look at verse 25. Then he, that's Barnabas, went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. And taught large numbers. That's what really means. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And so Barnabas, after exhorting them to remain true to the Lord, determines that what this church is in need of is, in, is some good teaching. And he goes, I'm not going to take on this task all by myself. I'm going to go get Saul, who has been off in Tarsus for you know, however long now, years at this point. He doesn't have his address or anything. He goes to Tarsus and he gets Paul. Why does he do this? Why does he make all this effort to get Saul there to help teach the church? And the answer is because teaching is really 
really important. If the scriptures are not taught to the people of God, the word is soon abandoned. If the people are not reminded of the gospel, the gospel is soon forgotten. Moreover, the people of God hunger and thirst for righteousness. They long for the word of God. If you are in Christ, you should have a desire to hear God's word, to learn about God's word, because it's God's word that tells us about God. Learning is about loving. It's about growing into a deeper and intimate relationship with God and with one another. I wouldn't be a very good husband if I never learned anything about my wife. And she wouldn't be a very good wife if she never learned anything about me. So for example, let's say she really wants to encourage me and so uh, I, I you know, come home from work one day and she says, I've got a great surprise for you. Kale smoothie. Even better. That's not all. That's not all. Three hour PowerPoint presentation on crafting. Also, it's not it. I have invited a hundred people over. I'm kind of an introvert if you didn't know. She's not loving me well there. Like she likes that stuff, I think. She likes some of that stuff. But to try to love me in that way, like I'm not feeling, that's actually, that's not loving towards me. See, learning about me, she would learn, like the way that she can love me with some of these things is, you know, maybe some chicken wings, some football, a small group of people, maybe no people, you know, introverts. But you see, the point here is if you love God, you will want to learn about him. Teaching is so important because if you don't learn about who God is, you start morphing him into some weird, grotesque version of yourself. You think, I like PowerPoint presentations on crafting, so God must be the God of PowerPoint. Not a great illustration, but, but you, maybe you're picking up. Like you make God like the things you like and look the way you want him to look rather than allowing him to define himself in his word. He has defined himself. He's revealed himself to us most perfectly in Jesus Christ. So for us to not learn about who he is is negligence, sin. And a consequence of that negligence will be ignorance and eventually idolatry as we construct a God that looks just like us. We want to be a people that learns about grace. And it's really interesting here. The primary context where we see this teaching taking place is the gathering of the church. The whole year they meet together with the church in verse 26. They're, they're meeting together. So, so one of the primary ways that we learn about God is in this gathering. When I do what I'm doing right now, and when we sing songs about Jesus, we pray, we gather together. This is how we grow in our affection for God, and it's not optional. It's not optional for those of you in the back. Not optional. 
Hebrews 10 tells us, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together. The word for gather in the Bible is ecclesia, which gives us our word church. Not neglecting to church together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Do not stop gathering together, he says. Now, there are times when you miss church and it's, it's like legitimate, right? You're on vacation or um, someone is sick and you shouldn't come. But what's worrisome as a pastor and should be worrisome to you as other church members is when people are absent, not as the result of circumstances, but as the consequence of their chosen sin. The question to ask yourself too, when I miss this gathering, is it the result of, hey, circumstances, I really couldn't get there? Or is it the result of your sin? That you have prioritized something else above this gathering? It's important. This is where we provoke one another to love and good works. This is where we encourage one another all the more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. The church gathers. We see it throughout the New Testament. We see that they're gathered here. And their gathering and the grace of God at work in them earns them the designation Christians. See that in verse 26? It's the first place that the church is called Christians. And Christians, it's not a favored term within the church. It only shows up three times in the New Testament here, uh, later on in Acts, and then I think it's First or Second Peter. But it's not; it was a term of derision, an attempted one, where they're, you know, little Christ or something to that. It was kind of making fun, kind of an insult, and eventually got adopted into our nomenclature, and that's how we identify ourselves today: Christians, Christ followers, little Christs. We'll follow him, but initially, not so much. And the church much prefers throughout the New Testament to uh, identify itself in terms of brothers and sisters, the saints church. We see here that they are identified as Christians because of their gathering and their following Jesus. They're living in a way that's distinct from the culture around them. It's also important. It shows that all of a sudden people are looking and they're going, this is not just a Jewish movement. This is not some form of Judaism. This is something different. These are, these are Christians. They have their own teaching, their own doctrine. They're called Christians at Antioch. I wonder, is there, any, is there anything distinct about us? Do you live in such a way that anyone would recognize you as a Christian? We want to commit ourselves to learning about grace, about how we can follow Christ. The church is characterized by grace. And we see that characterization in the final few verses of this chapter, starting in verse 27. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up 
and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. And so I love this whole scene here. You get a prophet comes up from Jerusalem and he says, hey, there's going to be a famine. It hasn't come yet. And I want you guys uh, to help meet the need. There's a famine coming. And this, this group of people, uh, these Christians, get together and they say, uh, we are going to give, and we're going to, according to our ability, we're going to give generously. We're going to send relief to the brothers and sisters living in Judea, even though they don't know they need the relief yet. Right? Agabus is, is prophesying. And so I just, I love God is going, I am going to provide food, resources, in light of this famine that's going to come for a people that don't know they're going to need those resources yet and haven't even prayed for the relief. So that when they do pray for the relief, the provisions are already there. Love it. Love to the, the church at Antioch stands, stands ready to act with grace, to give because they have received grace. And also, they're the answer to prayers that are yet to be prayed. I've thought about that a little bit this week. How can I live in such a way, act with such grace, that I might be the answer to someone's prayer? You know, do you live as an answer to prayer in people's lives? We don't have to think of this in like a big grand way. Just little things. I can think, you know, I pray for silly things all the time, and, and God often, he loves to use his church to answer prayer. There's a family that visited us a few weeks ago, uh, and they used to live in Stony Creek, uh, and they, they sold their house there and moved on. And before they called me, like a week or two before they called me, I had prayed for some silly things. It's like, Lord, I would really like a, a different bed, a big bed. I don't want to buy one because they're, they're expensive, and I don't want to spend the money, but it'd be, it'd be nice if you could just make that happen. And then they call me, and guess what they have? A bunch of stuff in their house that they want to give me. Nice king-size bed. And more. I had a table, bookshelf, all kinds of stuff. I raided that place. But God, God used them as an answer, like a, a prayer that I like, never expected to be answered. All at once, here's stuff showing up. It doesn't always work like that. It does sometimes. God answers prayers through his people. Now, I've prayed for, for firewood before, multiple times, shown up every year in, year out. People come and bring me wood, and sometimes I have to work for it, sometimes I don't. This year I didn't. Glenn brought some. He didn't know that, though. He didn't know that till just now. He didn't know that I, I, every year. I'm like, hey, Lord, hook me up a little firewood that I don't have to work for. It's come, I don't even know where I was coming home from. He's in my yard throwing wood into my shed. It's neat. And, and what he, I think, from his perspective, is I'm going to encourage my brother. And so when you think about how you can encourage other people, you might be answering a prayer. Think about how you can serve one another and live graciously as an answer to prayer. Act with grace because you have been given grace. I mean, God, God has given you an example of how we, you ought to live your life graciously. I think the chief example is the cross. I mean, I mean, God resolved not to give us the condemnation we deserve, but instead to become like us. 
to live a perfect life for us, to die a substitutionary death for us, to rise from the dead for us. And he's promised to return for us, to make all things new. He has given us everything. He's served us, loved us. His grace is evident. And we ought to be gracious as those who have received that wonderful grace. He is throwing a party. And he invites all who will come with repentance and faith to join it. The celebration of redemption. And it's for all who will come. A young boy wipes sweat from his brow. He catches the colors of the sunset, reds, oranges, yellows, as it creeps behind the horizon. It's been a long day of work. He lifts his legs, they are heavy, as he begins walking back towards the house. And at first, very faintly, he hears what sounds like music. So quickly he asks someone, what is going on? What is this music and dancing? And he's told, your brother has returned. He who was lost has been found, and there is a celebration. Your father has been gracious. And the boy is enraged. He sulks, refusing to enter into the celebration, refusing to enjoy the father's grace. And yet the father, as the host of the party, makes his way out to the boy and pleads with him to come in. The boy, it seems, is left standing outside. The parable of the prodigal sons is it's one of my favorite. We see a boy who goes off, recognizes his sin turns from it and returns to the Father to enjoy His grace. But this parable has a twist because it's preceded by two other parables in a conversation with the Pharisees and Jesus. And Pharisees are mad that Jesus is eating with sinners. And so He tells them these three parables in succession. The first parable is about a sheep who is lost, found, and then celebrated. The second parable is about a coin that's lost, found, and then celebrated. And then we come to this parable of the prodigal sons, and you're going, nobody looks for this youngest son. He comes back, there's a celebration, there's grace, there's mercy. End of story, right? No. This weird conversation between the father and the elder son. It dawns on you that in each parable, something is lost and then searched for and then celebrated. And the father is searching, he goes out and looks for the elder brother. Which makes you go ask the question, who's, who's really lost in the parable? It's not the younger brother. He has turned from his sins. He's enjoying the Father's grace. It's the elder brother who doesn't think he needs that grace. 
but thinks he's entitled and also thinks he's entitled to it. He remains outside, refusing to enter into the celebration, despite the fact that the Father has searched for him. Here's here's the point. The characteristic of anybody who is enjoying the eternal celebration of redemption, the redemption that Christ purchased for us by his blood, anybody that enjoys relationship with God does so as a consequence of grace. It's not because they paid some moral cover charge at the door. Like, I did this many good things, let me in. No. The only cover charge to enter into God's party is repentance and faith. And the prodigal son, the elder son, is not willing to let go of his good works and enjoy grace. The church is characterized by grace, not self-righteousness. So friends, this morning, I want to encourage you to remember God's grace to you so that you might be characterized by it. You might be a gracious people that speak about grace, look for grace, give ourselves to learning about grace, a people that acts with grace. My prayer is that we would be a people that act like our Savior. Prayer is that we would have a culture of grace here. Grace, grace, God's grace. He pardons and cleanses. By it we are saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have been about the business of saving sinners like us for a long time. We thank you that you're still in that business. That you allow us to participate in your work by allowing us to share Christ with others. Thank you for the privilege of encouraging one another. The privilege of learning more and more about you. The privilege of learning to act like you. God, your mercy is staggering that you would, you God, would send Jesus, very God of very God, to become a man, to die. This, this is humbling. This is amazing grace. Thank you that he didn't stay dead, that he rose again so that we don't have to fear death but can look forward to forever with you and one another when he makes all things new upon his return. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.